The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm also not opposed to U.S. engagement with Europe on a whole range of issues from trade, investment, technology to climate change. In some respects, U.S. engagement should increase with our European partners. So what I am concerned with specifically is the post-Cold War U.S. attempt to be the primary guarantor of European security. And that has happened through the vehicle of NATO. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st, 2021. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was founded in 1949 and quickly became the main way that the United States guaranteed the security of Western Europe, especially against possible invasion by the Soviet Union. But with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, and the end of the Cold War, NATO has faced a series of identity crises. Should it continue to exist in its current form or change? If so, should it shrink or expand? Should it continue focusing on European security or embrace global peacekeeping? What should its relationship with Russia be? And perhaps most importantly, should America continue to serve as the de facto head of NATO and the main guarantor of European security? Last week's NATO summit offers an opportunity to revisit all of these questions. I spoke with two experts on U.S. foreign policy, Stephen Wertheim, a historian and director of the Grand Strategy Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and Sarah Moeller, an assistant professor in international security at Seton Hall University. To frame the conversation, we focused on Stephen's recent essay in the New York Times, provocatively titled, Sorry Liberals, But You Really Shouldn't Love NATO. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st. Stephen Wertheim and Sarah Moeller on the past, present, and future of NATO. Sarah, let's start with some background. What is NATO? And, and can you give us a brief history of the organization and what its current status is? Yes, Alan. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm a longtime fan of Lawfare, so it's a real thrill to be here today. It would be impossible for me to do justice, even in a 34-minute podcast, to NATO's 72-year storied history. So what I'm going to do instead is sort of make three quick points that I think are going to tease up the discussion we're going to have today, and then refer Lawfare's listeners to the excellent book by Timothy Sale on NATO's history that came out, I guess, two years ago now from Cornell University Press called The Enduring Alliance. The first point about NATO's origins is that it's important to know that it actually originated out of a Western European attempt to formulate a post 
World War II alliance. This was led by the British, the French, and the Benelux countries, and eventually the U.S. was brought in to provide strength and credibility, and we see the formation of NATO with the signing of the Washington Treaty in April of 1949. At that time, it had 12 members. Uh, Today, of course, it now has 30. But NATO is primarily a military alliance, and as such, a lot of attention over the years, particularly during the Cold War, has been given to Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, the Collective Defense Clause. This is the guarantee that says, in a nutshell, an attack upon one is an attack upon all. But there's another important article that's been getting a lot more attention in recent years from the treaty. And I'd like to just read it quickly, if I may. And it's Article 2, which reads, the parties will contribute toward the further development of peaceful and friendly international relations by strengthening their free institutions, by bringing about a better understanding of the principles upon which these institutions are founded, and by promoting conditions of stability and well-being. Now, throughout NATO's history, there has been a tension, some might even call it an inherent dilemma, between strategic imperatives and this value foundations contained in the Washington Treaty. Now, obviously, during the Cold War, the strategic imperatives dominated. Since the Cold War's end, though, we've seen more attention given to the value foundations of the Washington Treaty. So that's my first point. Let me just pause you for for a second. Can you can you speak more about this values foundation? I, I think the 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 self defense nature of the alliance is what's I think most known to people. What is an example of how Article Two has operated in in practice? Well, it's varied over history, right? Obviously, we see today a lot more emphasis being placed on democracy and economic collaboration. But during the Cold War, this element of the alliance was admittedly downplayed, right? It's worth noting that both during the Cold War and today, there are non-democracies that belong to NATO, right? But my point is that this emphasis on Article 2 has grown since the end of the Cold War, particularly in the 1990s. And I'll say more about that since I know Stephen is also, like me, eager to talk about enlargement. But there's been a shift over the years between the emphasis on Article 5 versus Article 2. I would say that we are now in an era where both Article 2 and Article 5 are reaching almost parity, one could say, right, where uh, different members of the alliance are keen to emphasize different articles of the uh, alliance. So you, you mentioned you had two, two other features of NATO's history that you wanted to, to touch on. Yes. The second is that I think if one wants to understand NATO's storied past, it's important to understand it's an organization that is almost always in flux. It's constantly adapting and evolving. And this is true even during the Cold War. And indeed, some might even argue that this is an enduring and positive feature of the alliance. But certainly in the last three decades since the end of the Cold War, NATO has been impressive in the amount of adaptation that it has undertaken. Of course, we'll discuss the merits of some of those choices. But it was Richard Luger, as uh, we all know, who famously said that the alliance after the Cold War had to go out of area or go out of business. And I think it's often forgotten that 
by out of area, and NATO interpreted that in two ways. First was a geographical way, and we saw that originally in the 1990s with the Balkans peacekeeping missions. But the second was a functional way that NATO was going to go out of area because it was going to expand its core mandate, which up until this point had been entirely focused on that Article 5 collective defense clause and include two new core tasks or mandates that NATO officially takes on in the early 2000s, which is crisis management and cooperative security. So NATO is constantly adapting. We could argue that it's not adapting in the right direction, not adapting quickly enough, but it's not a status quo organization. The third and final point I'll make is that when one looks at the contours of NATO's history, it almost always acts at the behest of the United States. It almost always ends up going in the long term where the U.S. wants it to go. It sometimes takes a while for it to get there, but to paraphrase Bismarck, it's clear who in this alliance is the horse and who is the rider. So before I turn to, to Stephen's recent critiques of, of NATO, I, I want to get two more background questions kind of out, out on the table. So the first is that, you know, NATO became a particular topic of not just attention, but of controversy during the Trump administration, and in particular with respect to Donald Trump's uh, skepticism, let's say, of the value of the NATO alliance. How did Trump depart from uh, recent U.S. history? And, and what, what stood out about how Trump in particular approached uh, NATO and the U.S.'s role in it? I think it was a largely rhetorical and tonal difference. Uh, his criticisms were aired publicly and in less than flattering language, ways you don't normally communicate to your allies and friends. But the underlying message that Trump brought to the fore, which was one about burden-sharing dynamics in the alliance, is not a new one. I mean, we can go back to Eisenhower, but certainly the Kennedy administration, and there are quite colorful quotes, though they're always uttered in private, about the Europeans and their tendency to free ride when it comes to security and defense costs. So it's worth remembering that the underlying issue, right, is not a new one. Similarly, we can recall Secretary of Defense Bob Gates' farewell address, right, where he was quite critical of the Europeans' failure to step up on this side. And Obama, too, during his administration, had the line that he had little appreciation, I'm paraphrasing here, for free riders, right? So the concern, the issue is not new. What was new was the way Trump, in his classic rhetorical style, dealt with it. And I think also on this words versus deeds division, it's worth remembering that in the deeds column of the Trump administration, we actually saw a lot more consistency, I think, uh, with regards to U.S. policy to NATO and Europe than is often appreciated. We saw that the troop increases that what happened in Poland right, our significant development, as was the budgetary allocations for the European Defense Initiative, previously called the European Reassurance Initiative. It's only in the last throes of the Trump administration uh, in August of 2020 that he, uh, or 2019, I guess it was, the pandemic has made me lose all uh, sense of time, 
that uh, the Pentagon at the White House's behest put out this controversial proposal to withdraw troops from Germany. And it actually didn't happen. And during Trump's administration, we know now the Biden administration has reversed it. So I lo- I, when I look at the, the, the Trump administration record on, on NATO, I actually see a lot more continuity, again, with the huge caveat of the rhetoric, right, which obviously was inflamed during his tenure. So, Stephen, let's let's turn to you. You recently published a, a provocative and sort of sharply argued piece in the New York Times with the title, Sorry, Liberal, But You Really Shouldn't Love NATO. So what is, in your view, the liberal or progressive or however you want to characterize it, the case against uh, NATO? Well, thanks, Alan. It's a delight to be in conversation with you and with Sara today. So let me say, first of all, that, uh, of course, I, I speak for myself and One of the striking things to me as a historian is how left and progressive criticisms of NATO are perhaps at a historic low point today. And I think that's odd, given the fact that progressives have been quite active over the last decade plus in calling for an end to endless war and calling for the United States to have a more restrained military role in the world in calling for decreased defense budgets and so forth. So the starting point uh, for my analysis in the, in the brief op-ed was that despite some really questionable aspects of U.S. leadership of NATO from the 1990s to the present, and dis- despite current trends on the left, it seems as though the left has exempted Europe and NATO from its overall critique of U.S. foreign policy, and that needs to be explained. Now, obviously, I am advancing some some criticisms of uh, the U.S. role in NATO and in European security affairs. So let me you know, put those uh, in, a, in a nutshell. What I'm not opposed to is the role of NATO prior to 1991, when it was a, a defensive alliance Uh, that had a very clear mission, which was to deter or defend against any uh, Soviet attempt to overrun Western Europe. What I'm not opposed to are European efforts to provide for their collective defense. I think that uh, Europeans should take the lead in defending Europe. And if they want to do that collectively, I think that'd be a very good idea. I'm also not opposed to U.S. engagement with Europe on a whole range of issues from trade, investment, technology to climate change. In some respects, U.S. engagement should increase with our European partners. So what I am concerned with specifically is the post-Cold War U.S. attempt to be the primary guarantor of European security. And that has happened through the vehicle of NATO. So so let me let me unpack some of that because there's sort of a lot in and then we're going to get into, I think, detail of, of your of your different criticisms. But one kind of threshold question I want to ask is in the piece and right now, you emphasize that your critique is from the left, from the progressive end. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, we're, I think, very comfortable talking about what a left or progressive perspective on economic or social policy is. But in what way is this foreign policy criticism specifically a left criticism? Because 
of course, I think many of those who you know, will read your bottom line will say, well, this seems very similar to critiques we get sometimes from the right, whether it was most recently from Donald Trump or in a previous generation from a figure like Pat Buchanan. And so what, what is it that makes your critique a, a left critique in particular? I do think there are some overlaps between left and right critiques of the U.S. role in NATO. And I think that's that's fine, though. Sara just gave an excellent answer, pointing out the fact that Donald Trump, despite berating European allies on the campaign trail and continuing as president, Donald Trump took actions that only uh, reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to NATO and, in fact, ramped up troop deployments in Eastern Europe, aided Ukraine more robustly than did the Obama administration, spent more on defense, not less. So Donald Trump, if he represents a current you know, right-wing criticism of NATO, I would have to question that premise, right? Donald Trump, by and large, only intensified longstanding U.S. patterns that actually go back to the very beginning of NATO, where where American leaders berate uh, the, or try to persuade uh, U.S. allies to do more burden sharing, while at the end of the day, they're unwilling to have the, U- the U.S. do less. And that perhaps is the crucial issue, because unless the United States is willing to do less, the risk is that others are not incentivized to actually burden share and eventually take the lead in managing their own security. So it's that latter point that that I'm suggesting uh, would be the wisest course for the United States going forward. You know, I think what makes this a left-wing critique, well, first of all, in terms of history, it's clear that the left has a long history, at least some elements of it, of being skeptical of NATO for the very sensible reason that it's a military alliance that for the United States, it is uh, pledging the United States to go to war on behalf of other countries, even though technically, uh, in a formal sense, NATO NATO's members are equals. In a practical sense, it's the United States that remains the guarantor of NATO. So when uh, NATO is enlarged, uh, that's another country that the United States has a responsibility to defend if anything were to go wrong, which means higher defense budgets, uh, which means perhaps U.S. troops being stationed in those places, which means a risk of of war, uh, which might not be, in fact, in the interests of the United States. So I cite in the piece the liberal Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone, uh, who was one of 10 Democrats in the Senate in 1998 to vote against the first round of NATO enlargement after the Cold War. In that case, it was just three states that were being admitted into NATO. And uh, he said that, you know, Europe is whole. That is a good thing. Essentially, the U.S. mission through NATO has been accomplished. And it would be unnecessary at best and dangerous at worst to you know, not only continue a military alliance in Europe, but to enlarge it, uh, because he saw that at least eventually Russia could not help but feel antagonized by the expansion of an alliance uh, whose guns had always been pointed towards Moscow. And I think that makes perfect sense from a progressive or left perspective that one would think that. 
Uh, and I think over time, that viewpoint has proved rather prescient. So let's let's talk about this transition that occurs in NATO's structure and its mission in 1991, when, with, of course, the end of the Soviet Union. And let me actually turn for this back back to Sarah, just to give us a little bit of background on how NATO has dealt historically with this question of expansion, especially in its continued march east. And, and if you could talk about, in particular, how NATO has thought about including former Soviet republics and, and you know, states like Ukraine and Georgia, which Russia considers very much to be within its sphere of influence. And also, if you could talk to you know, what the latest thinking on that is, you know, as we're speaking, as we're recording this, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin are meeting in this big summit. And so obviously these issues are, are uh, what, if they're not explicitly on the table, then they're certainly kind of on the periphery of these discussions. So you know, what, how, how is the history of NATO expansion sort of further east towards Russia? How has that gone and, and what is its current status? Absolutely. But I'd like to first touch on uh, some of the points that Stephen raised, because he put a lot on the table here. And obviously, I respectfully disagree with the thrust of his New York Times op-ed, which is not surprising, since that's why I was invited uh, here today, so that we can have this debate. But the reason I think that uh, Stephen's latest op-ed missed the mark, uh, and here I'm sympathetic to the plight of the op-ed writer who has to distill very complex arguments in usually around 800 words, is that as I read the piece, it's a critique of NATO on the grounds that it is, quote, a burden that risks great power war, end quote. The idea here being that NATO is an entangling alliance. And frankly, I don't buy that. If anything, there's evidence that points in the opposite direction, I would think. One could argue, and I want to be clear, this is not what I'm arguing, but one could make the argument that NATO has enabled the worst tendencies of U.S. foreign policy. But that's not actually the argument that Stephen makes. He is making an argument that, as I read it, is analogous to blaming your friend uh, after you pester them to go out for a night of drinking and you proceed to get drunk and spend all your money and end up inebriated. Uh, you then proceed to blame your friend for your own inebriation and lack of impulse control, right? So that's not how I see the U.S.-NATO relationship. Uh, I think Stephen's real problem with NATO is that, if anything, it's been an enabler of U.S. power since the end of the Cold War. It's gone along with the U.S. too much in the forever wars and on other issues. So we, uh, we can perhaps critique Europe members and Canada uh, for being too accommodating to U.S. interests, but it's wrong, I would argue, to assign blame and causality to NATO for America's foreign policy blunders of the past two decades. Regarding uh, the history of NATO enlargement or expansion, this is an old debate, uh, one I've gone on record with opposing in the past in the pages of the Washington Post and the Washington Quarterly and elsewhere. And for what it's worth, I was against NATO enlargement in the 1990s before it was cool to be against NATO enlargement. Uh, unfortunately, no one cared what I thought at the time because I was, at, uh, I was in middle school at the time. But again, I've written about this before. I think that NATO expansion 
particularly the way it expanded, was deeply problematic, especially from an organizational point of view, that NATO was simultaneous to these uh, moves to expand the alliance, was reforming its force structure and command structure in ways that would make expansion difficult to square. In terms of uh, where we are today, right, the reality is there are no do-overs in life or in international politics. So we have to deal with the world as it is. And the reality is that NATO is an alliance of 30 today, even though uh, we may wish it were not. I've also gone on record saying that NATO shouldn't grant Ukraine and Georgia membership in NATO. Um, The good news is that most of NATO's European members agree with that. I mean, it's worth remembering that at the time of the 2008 Bucharest summit declaration, it was France and Germany that slowed down the U.S. pressure or uh, energy surrounding possible uh, Ukraine and Georgia membership. There's simply zero appetite. There was in 2008, and frankly, there's even less appetite, as I read the European political landscape today, uh, for granting Ukraine and Georgia NATO membership. President Zelensky's tweets notwithstanding. So the bottom line is, and here, you know, I'm going to borrow from a colleague who very wisely tweeted this out, it's possible to be pro-NATO and be anti-NATO expansion. So it's possible to regret the NATO's expansion and still think there's a role for NATO today. So Stephen, let, let's now, you know, especially based on sort of what, what Sarah pointed out, let's let's talk about the kind of the, the thrust of your critique against NATO and really get into the specifics. As I read your piece, you know, the, the main point you were trying to get across is that uh, the problem with NATO is that it has made it easier for America to wage war and that this in turn has led to some serious foreign policy mistakes. So first, just to make sure we're on the same page, is this a fair summary of the argument that you have against NATO? That's part of it. I also am concerned about what U.S.-led NATO does vis-a-vis relations with Russia, so leaving aside U.S.-led wars in the Middle East, and more generally, as Sarah alluded to, to the fact that I just don't think that the United States being the security guarantor of so many countries in Europe is, in fact, in the interests of the United States. Okay. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's now go through some of those arguments. Um, so th- the first question I, I had was, and this is sort of echoing partly what, what Sarah just said, is it really the case, 
forget the normative argument, but just as a descriptive point, is it really accurate to say that NATO has been a main driver of American foreign policy? So I'm thinking, for example, of the two major wars since 9-11, right? The war in Afghanistan, which NATO, of course, participated in, uh, and then the war in Iraq, which NATO notably did not participate in. And so it strikes me that with respect to Afghanistan, the United States was going to involve, you know, was going to wage war against the Taliban, whether or not NATO would have involved itself. And with Iraq, which I think is generally recognized as America's main, though certainly perhaps not only, but main post 9-11 foreign policy blunder, uh, NATO did not get involved. And so sort of it's hard to blame NATO for for that. Now, obviously, there have been other military engagements in the Middle East and and, and elsewhere. Um, but with these two main issues, it strikes me that NATO's involvement has not been a particular driver of whatever mistakes the United States may have committed. And I'm curious if, if you agree with that. I totally agree with that. Uh, the last thing I intended to claim was that somehow NATO is causing the United States to wage wars in the Middle East that it shouldn't be waging. Uh, that is just not true. The point I was making is quite different. First of all, the United States fundamentally, I think, has a misguided grand strategy and its commitment to European security, to being the leading agent in European security is part of that, as is, more destructively, its role dividing the Middle East into friends and enemies and therefore getting involved in a large number of wars, some of which seem to be ending, others are ongoing and even expanding. So that's my overall view. And if you, you know, look into my writing generally, that's the way I talk about things. This piece was specifically about NATO. And here I do think, though, that NATO has a bit of a role to play, not that it's to blame fundamentally for these U.S. foreign policy mistakes, but it does enable them a bit. It adds legitimacy to U.S. operations. NATO offers a forum for uh, U.S. interventions to, even when they're not approved by Congress and perhaps not by the U.N. Security Council, to seem like the United States is acting in concert with others. Let's remember that the Kosovo War in 1999 uh, was conducted through NATO uh, without U.N. support, uh, but was justified as being legitimate but illegal. Uh, so that set a, a troubling precedent. And there's also the case of Libya. Here it's a little bit different from the rest of the pattern, where my view of it is, you know, as far as, as I know, I'm a historian, I like to wait 30 years and then see the archives. But based on what we know right now, it seems like uh, the UK and, and France were most gung-ho uh, about intervening in Libya in uh, 2011. The Obama administration had a divided view. It did ultimately join in that effort uh, and even play a leading role in that effort. And that operation was also conducted through NATO. If NATO had not been there, you know, uh, there might have been more dissent or more hesitation on the part of President Obama. And so at best, I think you can say, you know, NATO is available to make minimal contributions as a show of support for general U.S. foreign policy efforts, but many of those efforts are not, in fact, efforts the United States should be undertaking. 
And insofar as, you know, NATO seeks to curry favor with the United States, it's doing so in ways that actually don't help. What would be most helpful for the United States uh, would be for European members of NATO to focus on defending Europe and leave other issues, uh, including China, which we could talk about more given, given Sara's provocative proposal on this score, but leaving the United States and others to deal with uh, security issues that more directly pertain to them or to their capabilities. So, so you, you mentioned the, the war in Kosovo, and I think that's actually an interesting issue to talk about at a little more depth. So, so the war in Kosovo was in large part defended on, on humanitarian grounds. And of course, defending any war on humanitarian grounds is obviously controversial, given the quite direct costs that war has. Um, but it does strike me, and this is perhaps especially true for progressives and, and liberals who want to who want the United States to adopt a role in on the world stage of expanding human rights, of, of standing up for you know, liberal human rights values, that in the absence of NATO and reliance on organizations that are broader, like the United Nations, um, you know, given, for example, the involvement of or, or the, the presence of, let's say, Russia and China on the Security Council, that in fact, it's, it's NATO that is the only international organization that would be capable of projecting these humanitarian values. So, you know, I, I'm thinking here, you know, what, what, what would you say to the Samantha Powers of the world, who, of course, um, speak very much from a liberal rather than a conservative perspective, as to the importance of NATO as possibly the only international institution that, because of its membership, which is to say sort of exclusively of liberal democracies, is able and willing to project liberal humanitarian international values uh, around the world? Sure. Well, one thing I would say is I think there's been some misinterpretation, which is quite understandable of my view, that I'm against NATO altogether or a European security effort. I am all for the very capable, uh, large, prosperous states in Europe stepping up. And if it seems like more should be done to defend Europe or to engage in humanitarian intervention elsewhere for them to be in charge of their destiny, to paraphrase uh, Angela Merkel herself. So the question really is, what is the agent that you want to be making decisions and in the driver's seat? Do you continue at this point in history to want the United States to be making these decisions on behalf of essentially everyone else? Or should the United States take a step back, allow a more multipolar world to flourish, in which case having you know not just uh, Russia cause problems or China rise, but also Europe come into its own uh, as an actor might be a very good thing. Now, I also happen to be quite skeptical of humanitarian intervention as a general matter. Kosovo is one of the cases that is a good candidate for a success story. But if you look at Libya, I think that's a bad, uh, bad candidate. And the fact of the matter is that NATO, as it exists right now, is really not doing that much with respect to humanitarian intervention. It's limited in its scope because of the nature of, of the European alliance to Europe. And, you know, Libya is 
close to Europe. So even if that's your concern, I'm, I'm not sure uh, how much a U.S.-led NATO is necessary to, to that kind of vision. Sarah, I, I know you wanted to comment in particular on the issue of NATO's involvement in the, the military action in, in Libya. So let me turn to you on that. And just in light of Stephen's last point, I would actually argue and have argued elsewhere that I don't think NATO should be in the humanitarian intervention business, right? I've gone on the record saying that I think NATO is overstretched right now in terms of the three mandates when it added crisis stability and cooperative security to collective defense after the end of the Cold War. But on Libya, particularly in light of your earlier comment, Alan, about the UN Security Council, it's worth remembering that that military intervention occurred under the auspices of a UN Security Council resolution. And look, you're not going to find me defending the uh, uh, merits of the Libya intervention because I think that uh, uh, while as a military occupation, even recognizing the hiccups that some European air forces ran out of munitions like precision bombs, I think as a military operation, the Libya operation was successful. But as uh, Jim Stavridis, who was the uh, NATO uh, Sakur at the time, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the, the senior military guy in NATO, uh, has argued, right, the problem in Libya comes, and this is classic, post-2001 problem for the U.S. military and others, is with the follow-up phase, with the so-called phase four and phase five, right, the stabilization and enabling civil authority. Um, there was a lack of follow-through by the Europeans, yes, but also the wider international community. But that's not a NATO problem per se, because I am a traditionalist in the sense that I see NATO as a military alliance, and so I would argue it shouldn't be doing humanitarian intervention. Uh, I also have a lot to say, obviously, about Europe coming into its own, but perhaps um, uh, Stephen would like to uh, jump in here. Well, thanks. Geez, I think it's becoming uh, less and less clear to me where we disagree. I think we agree on a lot with respect to humanitarian intervention. I think neither of us thinks that NATO is fundamentally to blame for U.S. foreign policy mistakes in the greater Middle East and I want to also register uh, that I agree with part of your earlier comeback to my op-ed that I don't blame Europeans uh, for welcoming the U.S. role in NATO to date. And I think it's quite unfair of people like Donald Trump to have berated Europeans for accepting what was a pretty good deal. And in any case, a deal that the United States was willing to offer. That is the issue. So I do see NATO as a burden on U.S. security. It's not because Europeans are burdening us and somehow we can't resist their charms. Uh, the issue is we're letting ourselves be unduly burdened because we're willing to extend profligate security guarantees and put ourselves on the front line of a potential conflict. And that's true with respect to to Europe, which is a unique case insofar as we have very good partners to whom to make a, a security transition, but it's also true in other regions of the world. Yeah, I guess if, if I could respond, I think, Stephen, where you and I disagree probably is with uh, Russia and China right? I'm an unusual cheerleader for NATO in the sense that I am a reformer, an admitted reformer. I don't think NATO is perfect. Um, I have uh, laid out uh, an agenda for where I would like to see NATO go, not just terms, 
in terms of focusing more on China, but also in terms of a division of duties with the European members of the alliance. But on Russia, since that was the, the, the thrust of the of your latest op-ed's focus, right, I think it's fair to say that Europe and the US, while they have some overlapping concerns with Russia, right, Europeans also have different concerns with Russia owing to historical and geographical factors. But similarly, I think it's fair to say that independent of Europe's concerns with Russia, the U.S. has issues with Russia. And so while uh, I do think NATO enlargement was a contributing factor to the deterioration in U.S. relations, the world is not monocausal. It's complicated. So I think that even absent NATO enlargement expansion, Putin would be Putin. He would be behaving in a way he has been behaving, which is uh, a leader of a declining power who wants attention, who wants to punch above his geopolitical weight. And for him, doing that means taking swipes at the dominant power, uh, which is the United States. So, so, you know, China has come up a couple of times in this conversation. And and so I do want to make sure we we talk about it before before we close. And obviously, NATO starts primarily as an alliance against the Soviet Union in 1991. That changes somewhat. But you know, the, 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 the tensions that we're still talking about today, and, and I think that, again, primarily Stephen is, is referencing in, in uh, talks about in, 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 his, in his piece and his, his larger argument, is this concern that NATO is, is potentially causing a conflict, an un- unnecessary conflict with, with Russia. But, but it, I, I do wonder, Stephen, you know, why isn't the, the security guarantee that America provides to Europe through NATO, why can't one view that as a, a good deal for America to the extent that it creates a very strong alliance in Europe, of course, for America's attempt to stand up against China, which which I think most people, and, and I wonder if there's agreement here among the three of us, most people probably recognize is going to be the main competitor to the United States in the 21st century rather than rather than Russia. Right? Why isn't why isn't it a, a reasonable trade, especially if the United States does not push NATO to expand to Ukraine and Georgia to say, you know, to France and Germany, you know, we will guarantee your security through NATO, but in return, you have to be with us as we push back against China over the next uh, several decades. The question is what exactly that contribution from Europe consists of. And I'm sure Sarah uh, has some specific ideas on this point, but color me skeptical if that's the right phrase, that such contributions are forthcoming given the capabilities of Europe right now militarily, I think it would be far better if what you're concerned about is counterbalancing Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific. I think it would be far better to effectuate a security transition in Europe so that the United States didn't in I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, find itself having to face potential war with Russia, let Europeans take the lead in European security, freeing the United States up to provide its capabilities, which are much more robust than anything Europe could develop for the future that I can foresee. That to me, if you're concerned about China, that to me is is the best Approach. I also just want to come back to the question of, you know, Putin is Putin. You know, there's no doubt about the qualities of Vladimir Putin as an individual, but we don't know the course that U.S.-Russian relations would have taken if instead of 
enlarging NATO uh, right up to Russia's borders and then offering uh, a pathway to membership for Ukraine and Georgia, uh, the United States had instead preferred to pull its troops back and or create a larger structure for European political and security affairs after 1991 that might have incorporated Russia rather than being inevitably seen as a threat to Russia. So we didn't run that experiment. We are where we are, but we can't rule out uh, the that possibility. And I think with respect to Ukraine, there is, you know, clearly the prospect of NATO membership uh, has been damaging and destabilizing. I think it's even unfair to Ukraine because I do not think Ukraine is going to become a member of NATO. Membership is opposed by Germany and France. Uh, I'm not sure where the Biden administration stands on it exactly at this point. And that can cause false hopes on the part of Ukraine and could lead to reckless behavior. And perhaps it already has. So that's that in particular so far has been troubling. And what I worry about in particular is we've already seen over two decades the prospects of a conflict with Russia go from being, you know, extremely minimal in the near term, given the state of things in the 1990s, to frighteningly real. Now let's look another decade, two decades, three decades ahead. What, where might be we be then? That is very much concerning. And this is what happens when you have an autopilot enlargement of U.S. security guarantees. There's no apparent way to ever pull any of them back. And so if the United States cannot make a decision to begin to pull back from Europe now, and we still have time to do so in a responsible way, given that Russia is not about to overrun Europe, then what conditions do we think will ever be better? Sarah, I wanted to give you a chance to respond, especially on this question of, of what, if anything, NATO can contribute to sort of U.S.-China relations. Right. Absolutely. So on the U.S. alliance landscape, uh, my view is that when it comes to U.S. Atlantic alliances and U.S. Pacific alliances, it's not an either or equation, right? We're going to need both. Um, and NATO has, as we saw at with the summit communique earlier this week, finally woken up. It took them a while to get there, but they finally woken up to the idea that they need to have a conversation about China. Um, not because NATO should be sending one of its standing maritime naval groups to the South China Seas anytime soon, but NATO having a conversation and having a strategy for dealing with NATO's China is imperative because, as Secretary General Ian Stoltenberg has pointed out and others, uh, NATO is already coming closer to Europe. Uh, in terms of what NATO can do to help, there are a variety of things. I agree that, uh, at least in the interim, right, it's not going to be primarily about military capacity, um, but NATO has other things to contribute. First, as as, as Stephen noted, and, and here's another point of agreement, that they can do more for themselves and therefore offset the U.S. presence uh, in Europe, because I think it's virtually guaranteed that the U.S. presence, force posture in Europe, will have to 
decrease in the coming years. So to the extent that Europeans can do more at home and in their own near abroad, specifically re- with respect to counterterrorism missions in North Africa and the Sahel or counter piracy off the Gulf of Aden, right? Uh, these are all good things. And there's another way that NATO actually could be beneficial, and that is sort of in um, slowing down the escalatory language and great power competition framing uh, between Washington and Beijing, right? Because France and Germany, by dragging their heels on having NATO come up with a China strategy, right? They're ironically, for, for, for Stephen's point of view, performing this sort of restrainer role, right? They're kind of doing on China at the moment. And again, we can, some would argue, myself included probably, that this is not necessarily a good thing, but they are sort of, you know, putting up a a, a challenge to uh, the U.S. position on China by making it very clear they don't want to choose sides, right? I think ultimately they have to, um, but there's still a role for them to play in, you know, correcting some of the worst tendencies of U.S. foreign policy blunders that we've seen over the past two decades. On Europeans doing more, I think it's going to be hard to ever find anyone arguing that today, that they don't need to do more, in other words. And I think for the first time, probably ever, but certainly a long time, we're at this unique moment in history where for the first time, both Europe and a U.S. administration are on the same page. Because what's happened in the past is there's been parallel tracks Um, But they just haven't lined up properly because whenever the Europeans in the past have tried to do more, U.S. administrations have started to worry about European armies and all sorts of other boogeymen in the closet, right? Because they recognize the overdue influence they get in NATO by uh, virtue of their position there. But for the first time, I think we have not just a European movement in the form of um, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is speaking about European strategic autonomy, but, but obviously the Germans as well. But we also have a U.S. president who would be open to Europe doing more, open to discussions about developing a clearer division of duties over transatlantic security. Um, So I actually, uh, I'm slightly optimistic, which is unusual uh, for me, that we might actually be at one of those rare inflection points in history where we will get some movement on this. Uh, You know, as the president is fond of saying, the proof is in the eating of the pudding and we need, we've seen a lot of words from the Europeans, we need deeds, we need them to step up and frankly put the dollars or euros in this case behind their strategic autonomy vision. So in the last few minutes, I want to ask each of you where we go from here. So let me start with you, Sarah. You know, you are someone who studies the inner workings of NATO for a living. You are a self-described NATO reformer. I'm sure there are many, many things that you would recommend changing, but, you know, limiting yourself to your to your top priority. You know, what do you think is the single most important thing that either the U.S. or other NATO members can do to advance your vision of what you think is kind of the, the best version of NATO going forward? For me, it's about going back to basics. As, as I've said previously um, during this recording, that NATO took on too much after the end of the Cold War, right? where they took on cooperative security and crisis uh, management. And I would argue that we need to get back into deterring and defending against peer or close to peer rivals. And that in some respects means uh, Russia, but more importantly, it means 
China. So I know uh, that uh, President Macron has laid out a different vision uh, for reform, but I think that uh, while he agrees NATO can't do everything, right, he wants to put more emphasis on counterterrorism and other activities, and I'm not necessarily sure that that is where NATO as a whole should be focusing. I think Europe should be focusing on that if they want to and they're near abroad, but uh, in terms of uh, NATO collectively, uh, I would like to see sort of a return to first principles. And, and Stephen, since this conversation was in, in- large part inspired by by your your piece in the New York Times what to you is the the single most important thing that again either the United States or other NATO member states can do um, in order to advance your vision of, of what of what you think NATO can most usefully be well I would love to see the European discussion of strategic autonomy as Sarah said advance and advance into action. Uh, I agree with Sara that Europe has a potentially a quite useful role to play in constraining the United States and uh, avoiding America becoming its own worst enemy in its foreign policy, making sure that if great power competition is what the United States seeks to do, that the rivalry is, is a strategic one, a thoughtful one that doesn't get out of control. I just wonder how effective... Uh, Europe can be uh, when both the United States and European leaders have agreed that the United States should be in a leadership position vis-a-vis security in Europe, and Europe should be in a subordinate position. And so my answer to your question, apologies for the long-windedness, would be that the United States should do two things that really do go together. It should support rather than suppress European defense initiatives, just as Sarah said, And I think in tandem with that, it should begin a gradual, maybe a decade-long process of drawing down U.S. forces in Europe. And specifically, that would mean as soon as possible, whether or not that happens, NATO should close the open door. That is, make clear that Ukraine and Georgia will not, in fact, become members. I think that's necessary, if only out of fairness to Ukraine and Georgia, but it also, I think, could uh, avoid a wider conflict. And one thing the United States can control, of course, we don't know how Russia would respond to various things. Putin is Putin. That's all clear. But the United States actually has control of whether it will be on the front lines of any future conflict, whether it's in the near term or decades from now. So I think the question for Americans is, does the United States want to put itself in a position with many dozen alliance commitments around the world of risking great power war for the rest of the 21st century? Yeah, if I could, Alan, just one uh, final point on the open door. I think Stephen can rest assured that that open door is firmly uh, shut for the foreseeable future, at least, I would say, at least a decade, if not longer. But I wouldn't uh, hold my breath on NATO coming out and saying that explicitly. I mean, one thing NATO does really well is kick the can down the road. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, what is privately acknowledged, uh, or often what is privately acknowledged, which in, in this case is that the open door is firmly shut shut, especially when it comes to Ukraine and Georgia, you're not going to read about it in the New York Times or Washington Post, but but it's it's closed. 
Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Sarah, Stephen, thank you very much for joining me to talk about uh, NATO. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This was great fun. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.